You're listening to Asylum Speakers, The Journey. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. For this very special season of the podcast, we followed common migration routes taken by refugees and asylum seekers from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine, all the way through Europe, documenting stories along the way. We spent time with people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers and staff working alongside them, and the host communities in each of the migration hotspots we visited. Many of the people we spoke to along this journey are being supported by projects funded by Comic Relief's Across Borders programme, which, thanks to the donations from the UK public, invest in organisations supporting refugees and asylum seekers along these routes. These first-hand accounts are here to educate, inspire and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions around migration today. Listen carefully because, for many of these people, this podcast is the first opportunity they've had for their important story to be heard. Join us as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. I'm so happy to be bringing you episode one of The Journey, a six-part podcast series following migration routes from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine to Northern Europe. I spent months following these routes, traveling through a series of migration hotspots and reconnecting with old friends, meeting new ones and documenting their incredible stories along the way. The time has finally come to share these stories with you and I could not be more excited about it. This has been the journey of a lifetime for me and seven years in the making and I really hope that you feel like you're right there on this journey with us. In this episode, we're starting from the beginning and exploring why people first embark on their journey. Why do people leave their countries and everything they ever knew behind? What are the push factors? We'll be hearing from people from all over the world about the circumstances that forced them to first become a refugee. So there's one reason that we're all familiar with, right? What's the first thing you think of when you ask yourself why people flee? War. It's the obvious one. It's the one we all understand. I know that when I first started working in this space, when I thought of refugees, I thought of Syria and the war there. Perhaps now it's Ukraine too, but over the years I've met many refugees from other countries that also have very valid reasons to claim asylum. Yet I continue to see comments and be asked the question about why people are leaving other countries. Is there war in Africa? That's the comment I got on social media. People have assumed that those fleeing African countries are coming for economic reasons, leaving because of poverty and coming to find jobs and opportunities. Well, this episode is designed to challenge that assumption and to diversify and deepen our understanding of why people are leaving. Our journey begins in North Africa, in Cairo, the capital city of Egypt, where we spent a week meeting many young people who have fled countries all over Africa, such as Eritrea, South Sudan, Nigeria, Sudan, Somalia and more, and are now living in Egypt. I'd like to first introduce you to Ahmed, 
a young Nigerian boy who shares his story of leaving Nigeria when he was 17 because of the second reason I'd like to explore today, religious persecution, at the hands of extremist group Boko Haram. We sat in a hot classroom of St Andrew's Refugee Services, also known as STARS, an amazing organisation supporting refugees in this hectic city. It was nice to find a moment of peace together within the chaos of the traffic and market stalls and street sellers just outside the window. I come from Nigeria. Specifically, I come from the northern part of the country. We had a nice life. Uh, my father was a math teacher and my mom was a nurse. So growing up, yeah, they did their best to provide education for us, as well as everything that a child could need from their parents. I think they did their best. Our life was nice until the Boko Haram crisis. If you're familiar with this, of course, because I'm from Northern Nigeria, that's the heart of the Boko Haram. I remember when the incident happened, I went to visit my grandparents. I was there to spend the holiday season, or I could say after, after school was off, I went there to live with them. While I was there, an attack happened, Boko Haram. They attacked the village. I didn't see it coming. It was in the middle of the night. We were sleeping around 2 p.m. I could vividly remember. We had some commotion. People were shouting from outside. So because it was during Eid break, like a Muslim celebration of kind of Christmas. Uh, so we thought it was just like a fireworks play. And so my grandmother asked me to go check. She gave me a flashlight, I remember, because there was no electricity. Uh, I saw people running around. Uh, from distance, I could see some buildings were already on fire. I said, what? I had heard about Boko Haram's attack a lot, but seeing it in real life, wow, sounds like a movie. Uh, I rushed, I didn't know what to do. So our first instinct was to stay in the house, to lock ourselves, and then someone came knocking on the door. Everybody should leave. I didn't know what happened next, just I found myself with other people rushing, dashing through the the other village, I, I can't even remember where we were heading. People were rushing in this direction and then behind us, of course, Boko Haram fighters. We could hear a lot of gunshots. So we managed to escape to another village. When we reached that village, it had already been deserted. So it had been attacked before our village. From there, we headed towards Lake Chad to cross the river to reach Chad. And we had to spend the night in the bush, of course, to hide ourselves from the attackers. Were you with your grandparents at this time? Were you together? We were not together. We met again in the boat. <laughs> Unfortunately, after we got on the boat, <laughs> some people started shouting because people were scared. So they thought Boko Haram were behind us again. And then we had to leave also. Oh my God. Anyway, we managed to, to make it to Chad because Chad is the nearest place or the safest place we could get to at that point. After that, my whole life changed. I didn't feel safe. I said, no, I'm not going to stay. 
I think it's important for the listeners to understand a little bit more about Boko Haram and what it was that they want, wanted and, and why you were under threat of them. Ah, that's a very good question. What Boko Haram wanted is anyone's guess. No one knows what, what they wanted. They attacked both Muslim and Christians. Boko Haram is a combination of two words. One is book in English, right? So book is haram, is forbidden. Uh, it means Western education is forbidden, okay? They say all people should adhere to their Islamic version. No Western invention, no Western studies, nothing. Because this is a plot for you to, <laughs> I think, to Westernize you. So my father, of course, who was a math teacher, uh, yeah, exactly, using both. So <laughs> we are part of the targeted group. And my mom also was a nurse, and she shouldn't be going out mixing with men, working in the government sector. To this day, I cannot tell you what Boko Haram want or wanted. It's just as confusing to me as it is to the listeners, I guess. <laughs> All I know is, if you don't adhere to the version of Islam, then you are a traitor, and you should be persecuted. Yes. And they attack more Muslims than they do Christians, actually. I am from the North. I see the attack on a daily basis on mosques, innocent people, rich, poor, kids, adults. Like, wow, it's, it's really confusing. I wish I could explain it to you. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess yeah. none of us can understand what goes on inside the heads of the, exactly. the people within that group. But I, I'm still interested to learn more, I guess, because I think it's important that the world does know about what's happening in northern Nigeria and at the hands of Boko Haram, because I think that actually a lot of people globally don't know the threat that because we meet Nigerians who are from a different part of Nigeria and it's safe there. We don't know about what's happening in the areas where it's unsafe. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Only in the north, I guess. North is hugely affected by Boko Haram. My initial plan was to go to the south, but because I had, I had no one there, it was just like, um, also I was in Nigeria, like if I was in the south, I didn't feel safe. I mean, not everyone, has a chance to cross the border. That's why you don't hear about many Nigerian refugees because it's very difficult for us to cross the border and come here or even neighboring countries. I think the, um, it's extremely difficult. I think I'm one of the lucky ones to find myself here. Yes. Are you connected with people still in Northern Nigeria, like your friends or family members that haven't left the region? Absolutely. On a daily basis, we hear from their stories. Uh, you get updates all the time. You listen to them. They say you are lucky. And they tell you about an attack. They tell you about difficulties. Wow. I feel like I'm just here, but my mind and everything is there. Those are people that we went to school together, or even family members. And they're still living that life, you know? The, this issue, I think, has been going on for more than 10 years. And still, there is no sight of stopping. It's really difficult. Even seeing me going back to Nigeria, because that's where I belong. <laughs> I see me there, yeah. 
this is a dream I have in my mind. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know at some point it will. Do you have your family still in Nigeria? Yeah, all of them. My mom, yeah. My dad, of course, passed away. But my mom and my, my father's siblings, they are there with her. I communicate with them, at least on a weekly basis, as much as I can. Before your life changed, before that day of that attack, did you live in, in fear of something like this happening? Never. Before that, I was really ambitious like every child. We had our dream. Actually, I never dreamt of leaving the country, Nigeria. That's where I grew up. I was familiar with everything. Before that attack, I thought just I will, I will graduate and be, <laughs> and be an educator or journalist or a lawyer. Mm. Those are the three. <laughs> wow. Exactly. And then everything changed overnight. And still, this is my, my dream, of course. Like, I'm not letting it go. Ahmed was one of many teenagers I met in Cairo who had left their country because of persecution due to their religion, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation or their identity. But not just this, there are wars in African countries that are not reaching our headlines, like the civil war in South Sudan. Let's hear from Albino, who has some important words to share about leaving his home. My name is Albina Yai. I am from South Sudan. Uh, I've been a refugee here in Egypt for now, like now uh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Let's start from the beginning. Okay. Maybe you can talk about why you left South Sudan. I left South Sudan because of the civil war. Was it dangerous there for you? Yeah. Do you remember the decision that you made to leave the day? Uh, that you... you know, when there's no decision you make, you know, but the situation forced you to leave your home country. No one left his home country unless there's something forced you. So I'm being forced. It's not a decision that I made. People are different. Some people can make decisions. Other people are forcing. You know. So I've been forcing. It's not a choice. Yeah, it's, it's not a choice. Mm -hmm. The feeling of being forced is a feeling of a sorrow and sadness. My home country, it is like my ancestor place, you know. Yeah, and there's so many things. My roots there, my language, my culture. People who can easily understand you, you know, uh, accept you. And it's not something easy when you are like going from your place to going to other people. A uh, place is not something easy because you will not adapt it. There will be a different barrier, too many barriers. You know? There will be a cultural barrier, there will be a religious barrier. There will be uh, many things that you're going to face. And our final segment from Cairo, let's hear from Rashid, a Somalian living in Egypt after fleeing violence and instability in his country. My name is Rashid. I'm from Somalia. I have two young brothers, and my mom and my father. My father, he lifted us when I was young. My mom, she was everything with me, a great hero. She was my father, and she was my mom, and she was my friend, and she was everything. My mom, she was, she was very sick. 
and uh, she was working hard. She was working hard. She was working day and night, and always she she was telling us like, "You have to work hard. You have to work hard." Rashid's mum had high blood pressure, and he talked to me a lot about how painful it was to make the decision to leave Somalia and his loved ones behind. I asked him about the moment he made the decision. I saw a lot of children in my village. They are traveling and they are crossing from the border. They are in Sweden, Germany, Italy. Our environment is not good. It's very real bad. It's not safe, totally it's not safe. Everything was difficult for us. I took the decision and I said to my mom, I will travel. It, it was very hard at the time, but my mom, she said, it's okay. You know, like I became 15 years old and just the place is very, very dark, even very dangerous. Rashid explained how his village was particularly dangerous for young boys like him. And he told me the story of the day that informed the difficult decision he was making. A day when him and his best friend had gone to watch their favourite football team, Liverpool, play on TV. A day which ended in tragedy. When I was taking the decision, I was lost my friends that he died. Just like we was watching for the Liverpool. I remember even we was watching for the Liverpool. And that day we was so crazy. We were so happy because we win. We win in the final. So just like he died. It was it was very hard for me. I was I don't know, but he was like walking with our village. There's in front. There's a soldiers. They they sit in a in a in a small like a small building. Sometimes they make explosion or something like that. Sometimes you are watching the, the football and there is might be some explosion. It happened in my village and the killing and the discrimination and the abuse. It's like something normal. Someone killing like without no reason. When I lost my friend, just like I was very scared, and my mom she said, "If you need to go, you can go." So I took the decision. I left the country. It was his mom from whom Rashid drew his strength and courage. I was learning from my mom. She was always saying to me, "Like, okay, to be sad. It's okay to be like to be alone. It's okay to be scary, but you don't need like to give up. It's like." Do whatever that you can. So I was doing everything I can. When I remember my mom, I feel like I'm in full energy. Because I know she was very sick and she was working day and night. So so when I just like remember her, I'm so young, I'm still 15 years old. My mom she and she encouraged me a lot. She told you a lot. Yeah, like when I speak to her, I was even crying, but always she encouraged me, she was saying like, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. You don't need to cry, you don't need to, to be sad. She was saying, Rashid, don't die before you did, so you have to survive. Before your death. Yeah, don't die before you did. How long ago did you not see your mom? For me, last time was 2016. 2016? Yeah, 2016, May. Was the last time we met for my mom? Do you speak to her? Yeah, I speak to her, but yeah, it's like very sad. Still, she's like struggling. She, she's still working. I want to be like my mom. Always, she motivated me, and she's like very strong woman. 
Let's take this moment to appreciate Rashid's mum, a very strong woman. The next stop on our journey is Lebanon. Back in Beirut, a city very close to my heart, I met up with an old friend of mine who we'll call M to protect his identity. He's Syrian and left because of the war, but is now also having to leave Lebanon for a reason we are yet to explore. His sexuality. I'll let him tell you about it. An incident happened with me that pushed me to the point that I need to call you in at CR. I was in my room, in my living room, alone with my boyfriend. And um, I didn't notice that the window was open and I live in a crowded area. So like buildings that sit up to, next to each other that people can see through my window, everything. I didn't notice that it was open and um, I started kissing him and, uh, you know, we started hugging each other. And then I heard the door was knocking. I opened the door and he was my neighbor. I'm like, what's wrong? What's the problem? And they were like, can we talk to someone responsible in this house? I'm like, this is me. I'm the one who's responsible. He started raiding and shouting like, how could you? You are a slut. I'm sorry about the bad words. You're saying what he said, you know? Yeah, this is what he said. <clears throat> you, you're doing something like... Prostitu- prostitution in this house, we don't like this. I'm like, what What did I do? They're like, we have filmed you from the window kissing that, that person. And this is not only illegal, you're, you're doing something illegal to the religion. I'm like, please just hold on. I don't know what, what you're talking about. I was lying actually, because you know, being gay in such a community is like a crime. So I was trying as much as I can to absorb his anger. But apparently, like, while I was talking to him, all the building neighbors, like, in each floor, we have 13 floor. Each floor, we have four houses. Imagine there was a man from each house in front of my house door. They were, like, shouting at me, get out of this area. We will kill you. We will throw you from the balcony. And they were, like, invading my house and, like, and and pushing me until I reached the balcony. And that time, actually... I felt that I just want the floor to collapse. I just want to be buried. At that moment, I wasn't listening to anyone. I was like deaf. All I was thinking about is that I'm exposed now and I'm in danger. I was trying to speak, but the words wasn't coming out of my throat. I don't know what happened. There was no sound, you know, no voice coming out. My boyfriend was inside. I was having that thoughts like, are they going to do something to me? Because the neighbor that lived right next, right under me, under my apartment, was like, I'm going to throw you. And you with all of that uh, behaviors, gay behaviors, because we don't accept that. God doesn't accept that. I'm like, I, I didn't do anything, but... They were like, we had pictures of you, we had videos, and you will be killed, you will be prisoned. I'm like, just hold on, please. I'm I'm not doing anything. And they were like shouting and shouting and shouting until I was like, please just stop. I'll do whatever you want, just stop. And they left, and I'm like, in the trauma now, you know? 
I literally felt it was the mid of summer, the highest levels of summer. But at that moment, believe me, Jazz, I felt like the most coldest moment ever I would feel. Like my body's cold, everything is feel weird. I didn't know, I don't know how to, exp to express this feeling. I just want to run away, you know, it, I just want to die at that moment. I, I slept that night because I didn't want to think about anything. I slept and I was thinking, please God, don't wake me up. At that moment, I really thought about this. The next day, I didn't know what to do. I came here and I, the, all the thing I was thinking about is just changing my house. I need to change the house. I need to put myself away from this stressing area because when I went out, when I went out of the house, they were like looking at me and and like, you're a sin. You're not a human being. You're you're not even equal to our dogs. You know, you're someone like should be killed. I'm so sorry that I've given you some details but this mm -hmm. is what i've lived and i think mm -hmm. this is what you want to hear definitely i had to change my number i had to change my clothes i had to leave immediately i left everything at that house i left all the furniture i left everything and then the landlord was like i'm not giving you everything i'm like i need my stuff i need mm -hmm. my personal stuff just like papers and yeah. things but the protection plan was like to disappear from this world, disappear from my sponsor who's given me the residency permit for a year, mm -hmm. and disappear from my family because they might know this and I might be in danger. So in one night, my life changed immediately. I'm, I'm a prisoner. Even though I'm not in a prison, I'm a prisoner because I can't go out. I can't be exposed to anyone because they might know someone in my area and they might get me. I had to do that. I, that's the only thing I had to do. For like five to six months, honestly, I faced all, this, all the types of depression. I started taking antidepressants and it was affecting me physically. I couldn't sleep. I was, what, what was that impression like? Grinding your teeth. Yeah, I was grinding my mm -hmm. teeth all the time because of the, those medications. I wasn't having such a such a good sleep. Like I'm always thinking about what would happen. You can't imagine how hard that time was. You know, the situation kept deteriorating, and I'm hiding and keeping myself away from people. And then the COVID nineteen thing started, and that where I didn't know what to do. Like. My boyfriend got sick. His situation was so bad and I couldn't do anything. He was in the hospital, right? Yeah, he was in the hospital and he was assigned as one of the most risky uh, cases in Lebanon because he was the first case that that's cough and split and spit blood because of COVID. I remember that was happening last time I was here and that's why we didn't we we saw each other but we didn't hang out that much because you were so worried I remember how worried exactly, you were at the time exactly, and yeah. spending like nights with him in hospital yeah and I was restricted from visiting him because you know covid mm -hmm. precautions mm -hmm. but 
I was uh, climbing walls of the hospital and running into the ER <laughs> and tell them that I'm a nurse here. Believe me, I did everything. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the end, he made it. And then after that thing, I had a call from the UNHCR telling me that my case has been submitted to the resettlement department. So if I accept this, that means I might travel. They might resettle me in a, in a different country mm -hmm. that understands my right and that protects my right. That's where you have to rethink about everything you did in this area, in this country, and all the hopes and all the dreams that you've been building, it won't be happening because you're going to be resettled in a different country. And it's just because you're not you're not straight, unfortunately, but you're still human, but you're not like them. You're not like the traditions that they follow. So here is me now waiting for a call, let's say, but not from God, from a person who works in an embassy that will save my life. And I'm so sad because why I have to wait for a person to save my happiness? Mm -hmm why I can't make my happiness, why the people in my country can make me happy, just because I want to sleep with the person that I want to. You just want to be with the person that you want to be with and be able to be is, a full expression of yourself, right? Exactly, this is what hide. I believe in, mm -hmm. but what they say, I'm just giving you mm -hmm. their perspective. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that you're also not in touch with your family? I mean, what about like... Well, it's been like, I'm not fully not in touch. I'm in touch with my brothers mm -hmm. who are connected to my family. What about your parents? They didn't know till now. Sorry. Right, my brother always tells me that. that, that he wants to get me back. So me getting back, that means there is something wrong. Okay. Because you mean he wants to heal you or something? Yeah, exactly. Like with Quran, with religion, with mm -hmm. something, I don't know. And mom before always used to tell a story about, you know, gay people who have been treated by Quran and religion and therapists, which is I don't believe in at all. No, of course not. Your mom used to, th to tell those stories, did you say? Yeah, when we were kids, mm -hmm. like as every, every normal mom in, in such a community, like conservative community mm -hmm. like this. Unfortunately. And you're not in contact with the, your parents now since the incident? Very, very, maybe three times, that's it. It sounds like you're living with a lot of fear right now. Honestly. So moving forward, how do you feel about this resettlement plan? Is that something that you want or what do you really want? Actually, what I want is to be away from here. Would you be able to go together with your boyfriend? Well, the thing is that before, I think, 2019, people were able to get their boyfriends with them mm -hmm. in the resettlement process. But after 2019, something happened in the UNHCR that, especially in LGBTIQ community cases, UNHCR decided to not get couples. So I'm the only one who's being departed. Hopefully, um, there's nothing submitted yet. Yeah. My my file's still in the process of uh, resettlement, so I'm waiting. For, and my boyfriend might follow me, or if I'm able to sponsor him later on in a, in a host country that I'm going to. So we've explored the stories of people fleeing because of their religion, their ethnicity, their sexuality. 
There are many places where the way that people identify can result in persecution. And I hope that these stories have opened your eyes to the fact that while somewhere might be safe for someone, it's not safe for everyone. That each case is unique and individual. And just because Lebanon might be a safe country for you or I to visit, or you might have met Nigerians who are not refugees, not everyone may have that same experience. So now let's go back to that very first reason for fleeing and hear from another Syrian friend of mine, Mustafa, who takes us on a deep dive into what fleeing a war zone actually looks like. My name is Mustafa Mohammed. I am 31 years old, came from Syria as a refugee. The war in Syria started. They took me to the army and it was horrible. After they took me to the army, you are in the army, you are in front fly, front line. The government was like just taking us to fight and to be killed. Mm-hmm. And the last mission I did technically was the Syrian army. We were 1,000 people, kind of group. The fight started. What exactly happened is people die and out of 1,200 people, we were seven alive. I am one of them. So other six people who are still alive except me. And... What I get, I get a bullet on my leg. Wow. So out of 1,500 people. 1,200 people. 200 people. You were one of seven to survive. That's why I hate wars. That's why I saw people dying in front of me. People who stay with me over a year and a half trying to survive. Mm. Under that, we cannot run away. Because if you run away, there's like snipers over your center. And the sniper will shoot you. Like your people, they have to shoot you. So there's no way to run away. So after that, when I get a bullet, I went to my family house and it was very bad for my family to see me and things. They thought I lost my leg. Basically, they gave me 10 days. After that, I had to go back to the army. I hide myself for three years in one of the room, hidden room in my family house. And that's actual fact. So, Whoa, so to avoid going back to the army, you hid... Three years. And they must have been coming to find you and coming to knock on the door and coming. Yes. So my father designed the thing, which is like a door, but has a car- uh, cupboard in Like uh, a secret front. door. Yeah, so I just go oh my there. God, this is like a film. Yes, actually, it's, it's crazy, but I could manage to hide. And also when they come to serve the house for me, I was able to go in the night to my auntie house. I was hiding in the kind of like storage space. In and my I guess area. you couldn't you couldn't like walk around the area or like go to the shops or Oh nothing. I just like hidden in one room or in the storage room. There's not such a thing even to hang out so much in the house because if I make sound, yeah. my the neighbor record me. It's so you, you were even scared of your own neighbors? Like. Yes, because we have uh, the another neighbor who agree with Bashar Assad uh, okay. policy. So it was like very bad. So basically just like being hidden in one room for three years. Oh my God. How did that do for your like mental health? That must have been the most... Yeah, I don't have hair obviously now. <laughs> and so, so much stress. I lost so much weight because I was having like very stressful living situation. Mm-hmm. Still, uh, I could manage to work online somehow to buy some stuff and sell it in my city. Entrepreneurial. (laughs) Or doing a lot of games. I love games, so. Yeah? Yeah, in my house I have like GameCube, Nintendo Switch. Okay, so you had stuff to keep you entertained as much as possible. After three years of hiding in his own home, Mustafa decided it was time to leave Syria. And he made his way to the border with Turkey. But first, he had to cross an active war zone which despite paying smugglers hundreds of pounds to help him do so, still had him running for his life. 
they told me, are you ready? I was like, for what? It's like, you have to run now. The free army and the government army at this point. And you have to run to the free army, to that place. So I was like, how long it will take me there? They said, just 100 meters, like easy. I was like, okay. Obviously, I don't have clothes or something because you cannot, because they're expecting me to run. So they tell me to don't take anything except the clothes I have. Yeah. And how's your leg at this point? Is it fully healed? Are you yeah, able after to run? three years, I could be able to okay. run. But I don't have the strength to run because I never walked. Yeah, for three you're years. just in the house. I just go around circle. And I smoked so much, of course. And I was like, they say it's 100 to 200 meters, it's fine. So I'll just run it. You know how many bullets get hit you? Like, because they can just both sides feel there is movement. Yeah. And so both of them hit you. Oh my so God. So I had to run and like start it. And, and like, you just jump, it's crazy. And you keep running and it's just like, you feel it's never, you will never reach it. And actually, I think it was over a kilometer. It was like, it's over a thousand meters, not 200 meters. It's way far. So I get a lot of okay, scar from my body because the environment there, a lot of sticks, cuts like and cuts and yeah, so it was horrible. So I run and after that, they told me you will find kind of a house at the end. I was like, okay, keep running here, keep running here. Obviously I get to be so scared at some point. So I stop, I just lay down the thing. I cannot breathe anymore. It's very like, very scary and like, you can hear the bullets just dodging ears everywhere. It just doesn't stop. And you need to go out to the house. So you will be more appearing huh? to the house. And there's a door open. And they say to you, just jump inside this door and you are safe. You feel like you are doing that for like years, just staring at this door. But you just look at it and everything stops. Just feel like everything's stopping. You know, that's like it's three meters, maybe. You have to climb this kind of very mm. slightly cliff. But when you go up, you know that you'll be appearing for all these fire oh people to shoot you. And after you have to jump inside the door. It was horrible. But after that, I just like run, touch it. And I really jump inside the house. Inside the house, there is people who is expecting you to come. They told me, take your time, this water, relax. Don't talk, just sit. And then she sat on the floor and just like having the water shaking. Like, I saw death. After that, I relaxed. They told me you need to wash yourself because I was bleeding in some parts because of the cuts. So I washed myself. And they said to me, do you want some food? So I was like, I cannot eat. I just need water. So relax, you are safe now. Nothing will touch you. Oh yeah. my God, Mustafa. So then you get to this free zone, but you're still inside Syria. Yeah, still inside Syria. So after that, I just rested. They took me to some areas close to the border of Turkey, smuggling smugglers again. Spent six hours walking between Syria and Turkish border to enter Turkey. And at the border, of course, also you get Turkish government shooting gun at you because they were trying to don't let people in. So this my journey just to cross Syrian border. I asked Mustafa, who now lives in Greece, whether he would like to go home to Syria one day. I wish if I could go back to my country. Do you think, like, if there is a possible way to go back, we will stay here? In a country where it's not our mother language, it's not our culture. There is our family, our roots, our everything. But we cannot. We cannot go back. There is war in our country, people dying every day. I feel like sometimes they refuse to read the news or they don't want to see 
what's exactly happening in our country. What you feel is like they don't want to hear. Let's go back to Albino, who has quite a unique idea for how we might tackle some of the hostility and lack of empathy for refugees and asylum seekers. If I can do anything in the world yeah. now, yeah. honestly, not the common things. People want peace, people living in peace, stopping war, and mm-hmm. this, like this. What I can do, I can like make people experience suffering, bring them back in order to appreciate what they have and the life that they're living in it. I see what you mean. So basically, let's put Donald Trump in a refugee camp, yes. see how he changes his opinion. Exactly, exactly. I like it. That's yeah, a very yeah, good plan. Yeah, yeah. Why there's still too much war, too much uh, problem getting increased day by day? Uh, because they are not living in the same People who are living, being like me, like people who experience the wars, they are different mentality. Mm-hmm. Their mentality change. The more, I mean, appreciate life, the more very, I mean, thinking in positive way. But people who don't experience things, I would put them all in struggle. And then bring them back and then everything will be okay. <laughs> I think it's a plan. Yeah. I think you should do it. Let's try and make, this, make it happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I, honestly, I agree with you. I think that people who have experienced suffering... They have the capacity to experience more joy. Exactly, like me now, I appreciate life, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. in the little details, right? Exactly, in mm-hmm. very details. I, I know the, the value of peace, the value of many things, you know what I'm saying? I could not agree with you more. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful world yeah. plan. <laughs> I hope that one day you can do it. I don't wish suffering on anyone forever, but for a short time. Yeah, short fine. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> what I mean. Like, take them for a short time yeah. and bring them back. And then our mindset will be the same. All of us will think. Yeah. Albino left me with some wise words. The lessons that I learned is focus on now. What you have now is more important than what happened yesterday and what you are going to get tomorrow. And give priority always to now. Do you feel happy now? Yes. Finally, let's finish this episode in Turkey. I met lots of incredible people here who you'll be hearing from later in the series, but I wanted to introduce you to a young Syrian I met in Istanbul called Mohammed, who read me this short poem that he wrote as a love letter to his home country of Syria. I was very uneasy when I left you. I wish I could come back to you, at least a few. You were the light of the sky. Without you, that you begin to dry. Please close to my eye, at least a few. I miss talking with you. It didn't finish without leaving you. It is the love that don't die. You are the light of my eye. Mm. <laughs> it's very short. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, miss I can feel the love. In today's episode, we explored themes of leaving home. And in next week's episode, we'll be heading to, and I say this in quotation marks, the first safe country that refugees arrive to. People often ask me, well, why don't refugees stay in the first safe country they land in? 
So we'll be taking a deep dive into what a life in that first safe country, Turkey, Lebanon or Egypt, looks like for refugees and asylum seekers. You'll be meeting lots of new people and some familiar ones too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asylum Speakers, The Journey, brought to you in collaboration with Comic Relief and organisations funded through Comic Relief's Across Borders programme. You can find out how to support Comic Relief's work at comicrelief.com. To find out more about the people in today's show, check out the links in the show notes. Also remember that I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie, or you can donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, share it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.